Hello, greetings, welcome to Hear Her Sports. I am your host and producer, Elizabeth Emery. The Winter Olympics start this week. I'm so excited to watch past Hear Her Sports guests like Deirdre Irwin, Elena Myers-Taylor, and Aaron Jackson compete in Beijing. I'll have links to those episodes in the show notes so you can learn more about their sports and history. And today's guest, Cynthia Apia, made this year's Canadian Olympic team and is already in Beijing getting ready. She will be competing in the two-woman bobsleigh as a pilot and in the monobob. She'll race the monobob on February 13th and 14th, and then the two-woman bobsleigh on February 18th and 19th. A link to the full bobsleigh Olympic schedule is in the show notes. Cynthia and I recorded before the team was announced, so you will hear us discuss what was remaining for her in order to make the team. Monobob is a new addition to the Olympics for women. There's a story behind that, which I will let Cynthia tell. To give a hint, you will hear some familiar sexist themes. That said, I do like a single athlete event, but there's much more to it than meets the eye. To follow up on what I wrote in the newsletter last week about the dates men's and women's cyclocross world championships started, I'll say here that men's four-person bobsleigh were first competed in the 1924 Olympics and men's two-person in 1932. Many, many years later, in 2002, the women's two-person bobsleigh was added to the Olympics, and now this year, 2022, the women will also compete in the monobob. It is fascinating to hear Cynthia talk about the teamwork involved in bobsleigh and even in monobob. She also has stories about her interest in physical activity for all, especially girls, a new cool AI tool she's been using for injury prevention and representation in snow sports. Whenever athletes take time away from their busy pre-Olympic schedule to be on Hear Her Sports, I get a bit weepy excited. It's such an honor that they do that. So I want to express my deep gratitude to Cynthia and to her team for making this happen. Well, now let's get to it. Cynthia Apia was a standout shot put and hammer throw athlete at York University. In the summer of 2011, she was introduced to bobsleigh at a testing camp at her university and has steadily progressed in the sport since then. She enjoyed an exceptional rookie season at the World Cup, where she pushed both two-time Olympic champion Callie Humphreys to a gold and bronze medal and rookie pilot Alicia Riesling to her first ever World Cup bronze medal. After heading to Pyeongchang as an alternate on Canada's 2018 Olympic bobsled team, Cynthia questioned continuing in the sport. But with encouragement from teammates and coaches, she decided to switch positions in the sled into the driver's seat. Shortly after returning from the Games, she took part in a Lake Placid driver's school. Her belief in herself paid off as she quickly became one of Canada's top pilots. Just last month, December 2021, she won her first medal, a beautiful silver medal, at a World Cup event in Attenberg, Germany. That success followed a bronze medal, an Olympic test event in October on the same track that will be the site of the Beijing 2022 Olympics. Cynthia also continues to be forced on the start block. She set a new ice house start record from the pilot bar in 2019 at 541. Outside of bobsleigh, Cynthia, a trivia buff, watches Jeopardy religiously. She is a huge Blue Jays fan and previously worked in the team's customer services department. Her journey towards a life in elite sport began through a Jays Care Foundation outreach initiative where children from underprivileged Toronto neighborhoods were invited to learn to play baseball at a local park. She was recognized by her peers at Bobsleigh Canada Skeleton with the L. Lamont Gordon Award in 2019. Well, welcome, Cynthia. Thank you so much for making the time. I love it. Well, thank you. This is uh, super fun to be a part of. 
You know, can we open with a description of where you are right now and what you're doing right at this minute? Yeah, so right now I'm in St. Moritz, Switzerland, which is considered the birthplace of my sport, and I am a bobsledder. I'm getting ready for the last qualification race before the Olympic Games in February. And are you on the Olympic team officially or or you still have to go through this last race? Yeah, we still have to go to this last race, but based off of how I'm ranked right now and how many points I've amassed over the course of the season, I've got a very good shot of being named to the Olympic team. Yeah, you've been doing really great lately. Thank you. So the other thing that's really interesting about what you're doing is there's a new sport in the Olympics for the women. It's the monobob. And I know there's a sort of, a, I don't know, an interesting history of it getting into the Olympics. Could you talk about the sport and what the monobob is and how it differs from the bobsleigh and sort of the history of it becoming part of the Olympics? Yeah, for sure. So bobsleigh is a winter sport where you're sitting in a sled and you're going down a an iced water slide, I guess you can say. And the sport's been around for, you know, since the beginning of the Winter Olympics, but the women's category is relatively in its infancy. Uh, women's bobsleigh or two women bobsleigh wasn't introduced into the Olympic program until 2002 in Salt Lake City. And now- That always blows me away, by the way. I know, it's it's always, it's. <laughs> I don't wanna say it's funny because it's not, <laughs> but I, I just find it interesting <laughs> when you hear, and for the first time, women will be competing in this discipline that men have been doing for many years. And it's like, okay, well, right. I guess we should be <laughs> celebrating, but should we? Um, but yeah, so bobsleigh on the women's side is, is still in its relative infancy. So after Pyeongchang in 2018, there was a push for gender equality across all the sports. And so for the longest time, men have been able to compete in two disciplines, two men and four men, and women have only been able to compete in the one discipline, two women. So after Pyeongchang, um, as I mentioned, there was a push for a second event and that second event manifested itself in monobob. Um, and what that is, is it's a singular person event. So one person pushes and drives. It looks very similar to a two women sled or a two man sled, but it really encompasses both roles in the two person event into one person's role. So what are your thoughts about that additional event not being the four woman event? I mean, I'll be the first to say that I'm super disappointed, um, especially because I was part of the crew that was pushing for four women to be an Olympic event. After Sochi, there was a lot of interest in 2014 to have four women be a separate event. And there were a lot of um, people pushing for that to happen, namely Kaylee Humphreys, uh, who was competing for Canada at that time, Alana Myers-Taylor, who was on the US, and Maria Constantine from Romania. And they were just throwing themselves into the men's competition saying, hey, women can do this too. It's high time that we've added a second event. We've shown that we're more than capable of doing two women. And the next progression is four women. The International Federation initially came out and said, okay, well, we'll just open up the category and make it gender neutral so that men and women can compete in the same discipline. But obviously, women are going to be disadvantaged. We're lighter. We don't push as fast. So we're not going to be able to be in the mix. So what ended up happening in 2016, I believe it was, was Kaylee got together a four-woman crew. So prior to this, it had been a female pilot with male crew members. And in 2016, Kaylee was just like, no, we got to show that women can do this across all the roles that four men or four women encompass. And so in Lake Placid, New York, 
I was part of her crew at that debut, the first all women four man race. It sounds so redundant to call it four, the women's of four men, but the first all women, four women race in a world cup race. And we were just doing that to just to show, Hey, we can do it on one of the most challenging tracks in the world, Lake Placid, New York. If we can do it here, we can do it anywhere. You know, that was just one step of many, many steps to try and get a second event. And we thought we had done, you know, the work that needed to be done, you know, the goalposts kept on getting moved, but we kept on meeting them every step of the way. And after Pyeongchang, we had heard that there was interest in having four women be that second event. But then once it officially was announced, Monobob was decided as the secondary event instead. And I felt like, you know, the hard work that those women had done over the course of the four years had just kind of gone to waste. That being said, I'm still grateful that we have a second event. And I really do hope that this is just a stepping stone to getting four women to be that second event. What's the appeal of the four woman or the four person bobsleigh? It's that team dynamic that you see being on an insider, being an athlete in the sport, you see on the men's side, how the guys come together on four man day. Um, it's kind of seen also as like the blue ribbon event in our sport. A lot of the small German towns and small European towns that we compete in, the whole city or the whole town will shut down on four man day and people are out in droves to come and watch this event. So it's like not just for the publicity aspect of it, but for me personally, the draw is that team dynamic that is sort of missing in two women. Unfortunately, it's it's a pretty cutthroat event where as a break woman, there are only X number of spots available at the Olympic Games. And I feel like four women would open up more roles and more spots. You'd have low turnover rates because the one thing that we see time and time again is a lot of women leave the sport, you know, just and bitter that they've done such hard work and they don't get a spot on the Olympic team because we're limited by how many spots you can bring. And so to have four women would open that up. And yeah, it would just be, it would just be nice to know that you have this group of women and we're all supporting each other and we're all coming together for that same goal that you see the guys have. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, on the other side, on the flip side, the monobob, certainly offers a lot of control. I mean, it's all up to you and you're fast or you're not. Oh, a hundred percent. And like, I don't want to come off as sounding like I'm upset that mono is the event, but I think one of the things that a lot of people don't see is the break women kind of do get shafted on mono, Bob, because one of the arguments for mono was that it would allow for women to have a second bite at the apple, a second chance to get an Olympic medal. However, only select women get that second chance, and it's just the pilot. So the break women are there helping move the sleds, helping to polish the runners on race day, but they don't get any of the glory. They don't get any, you know, they get they might get like a nice firm handshake and like, hey, good job. But they're putting just as much work into the mono as they are in the two women, but are getting none of the glory and none of the accolades into the success of that. That's one thing I find fascinating about team sports is where there's, you know, one person who gets most of the glory, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. is, you know, how do you keep the team happy and together when that happens? I don't know. It's hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something that I'm still struggling with. And the balance is um, a work in progress. And I know I've had many conversations with my break women 
especially this particular season where my mono results have been a lot better than my two women results. And, you know, there's always that fear of whether they resent me or if there is any resentment to the event, the sport of mono, because, you know, they're doing all the work and my results are are great there. And I know they're contributing to that, but they feel like it's an indirect contribution. Whereas in my two women event, I'm a little bit behind the pace. I'm not having the same metal results. And so you kind of get that sense of like, well, why is it so hard for her to replicate the results in two women as she does in mono? You know, we've had many chats and I try my best to incorporate them and let them know how much I appreciate them because at the end of the day, I rely on my break women. If they aren't there, I, I'm hooped. <laughs> like I, I got to have people who can help me push the sled on two man day or two women day but also people to help me move my sled on on monobob day or help me polish uh, two sets of runners, one for mono, one for two women. Polish the sleds, get them ready, get them tuned up for each race week and each race day. And if I'm left to do all of that by myself, you know, I, the performance will suffer immediately. That's so interesting. I never realized, see, <laughs> I never realized that the <laughs> brakeman did all that work. <laughs> yeah, it's really a team sport. And monobob especially, I think there's more work that goes into mono than in two women because, again, there's double the work, but only one person gets to compete. Well, you actually made the shift from being a brake person to being a driver after the last Olympics. So what was that shift like moving into the driver's seat? I mean, not just, you know, sort of the obvious stuff, but like, what was the mental shift for you of having to take on that responsibility and also to, you know, keep your brake person happy? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the shift was difficult and I'd already mentally been prepared for that, but I was coming off of a very disappointing 2018 Olympics campaign where I was named as an alternate and not a racing brakeman, despite the season that I had had and the testing numbers I had put up, I thought that I was poised to be on that Olympic team. So when I made the decision to switch to piloting, it was a very, I would say, monumental decision for me because I was, I had one foot out the door and I was ready to quit and leave bobsleigh and just go back to the regular world. But I knew that if I were to stay, it wouldn't be in a brakeman role. It would have to be the pilot role. And that's a very daunting task to take because financially you're kind of responsible early on in your you know progression as a as a pilot when you're first learning it's kind of like hey the federation will provide you with some beat up sleds and you're just there to learn but in terms of the runners the blades that we put on on our sleds you're responsible for that you're responsible for a toolbox um, sandpaper like I can't even begin to think of how much money I sunk into piloting the first two years. The other side of it is going into Pyeongchang, I was a World Cup brakeman, which provides you with a lot of funding from, you know, federal government or just um, just a lot more resources are available to you when you're on the World Cup. And I had to make that conscious decision to rescind all of that and essentially go back down to development status and work my way back up again to becoming a world cup pilot. And the general convention or the general thought is that it takes about eight years to be a full fledged world cup pilot. And I was hoping to do it in four years because it's been done. 
some people have done it successfully, some people not so successfully. And I was hoping that I would be part of that former group. But I had to make a decision at the beginning of that year or beginning of that Olympic quad in 2018 saying, I have to put everything I have into this and hope that it works out for the best. And if it doesn't, I have to be okay with that decision. And I think that was the hardest part to overcome was knowing that this could fail spectacularly and I'd have to be okay with that decision. (laughs) That's a hard, hard one. It is. It really is. I mean, I don't think anyone, if you told them, hey, four years from now, you're going to have a chance to go to the Olympics, but you could also not go to the Olympics because so many variables can happen. I mean, four years ago, I didn't think we'd be in year three of a pandemic. And if I had known that, I probably, yeah, I probably would have been like, you know what, maybe I'll I'll stay as a brakeman. If there's a pandemic that shows up in 2020, I don't know if I want to be a pilot at that point. But yeah, like these are the the decisions you kind of have to make and and understand that the path to the Olympic Games as a pilot, um, especially as a new pilot, is that much harder than as a brakeman. I mean, I think that's one thing that's interesting about the Olympics is that may not be appreciated by sort of the average fan is, you know, these four year cycles and athletes do have to think about it in in those terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean. We we don't really have that luxury of being able to plan, you know, maybe a year in advance or six months from now. You really have to understand that if you're going to commit to being an Olympic athlete, the next four years are put on hold. So whether it be, uh, you know, finding a stable job or settling down, buying a house, you know, a lot of those things now have to be not necessarily put on hold because, you know, athletes are capable of doing all those things simultaneously um, with being a an Olympic athlete, but every decision you make has to factor into that four-year plan. Okay, can I do this this year? Well, how will that affect year two of the quad? How will that affect year three of the quad? And so being an Olympic athlete, your sport encompasses every aspect of your life and every decision that you make needs to fall back and fall in line with that Olympic dream. Well, let's talk a little bit about your training. I read somewhere that you're using AI technology Is that true? Yeah. So it's something that it's funny because like at the beginning of, I would say the previous quad. So going into the 2018 Olympic season, we had done some stuff with one of the sports scientists at the gym that I train at in Calgary. And it was just to see, you know, if they could pick up on the potential of an injury coming up in the future. And I thought that was like super cool. And for some reason that program kind of ended, or at least my team was pulled out of that program. But then another opportunity kind of came up in a more portable way of doing this because the other way was just in a lab and there was no way we can <laughs> truck that along with us. Yeah, this newer way of, of being able to replicate a similar testing protocol of trying to see whether we can pick up on injuries and where your health is and, you know, where you're at physically, I thought like this was something that I felt was an added bonus to, to my training regimen. I mean, as athletes, you kind of have your bread and butter of, of training, especially in bobsleigh, sprinting, lifting, pushing. Those are like the main three components to become a successful bobsledder. But there's also the, like the little, the little stuff that people tend to overlook. And I was just like, I need to grab onto this and make sure that I'm, giving myself that advantage over my competitors. How does it work? So essentially what it is, is uh, these uh, insoles that have a, 
how do I explain this? They're like a chip, I guess. Um, and you put them in your insoles and all I do is track my, my jumps for the most part, every training day, just to have like a log of my movement patterns. Um, and it's with a company Plantiga and I send it back to a coordinator, I guess you could say, and she keeps track of my weekly reports. And if she picks up on something, you know, we'll flag it for me and be like, Hey, you know, we've noticed that you're trending in this way. And it's looking like you may need to change your training habits. Maybe you're overworked and your system is trying to warn you through these like metrics that we've picked up on that your body could be potentially leading to an injury. So maybe tailor your workouts this week and, and tone it down a bit, um, which is, wow, I think cool. something, yeah, it's, it's super cool. Like it's something that I wish a lot more people could get their hands on because when it comes to injuries, it's one of those things that it happens and you look back and you're like, Hey, what did I do wrong? Did I, were there warning signs? Were there bells ringing? And I was ignoring them. And I feel like, especially in, in bobsleigh and seeing the, the injuries that my teammates have come across, a lot of the time they just happen. Like there's nothing that really warns you that like, hey, you're going to pull your hamstring in two weeks time if you keep up at this pace. Or, you know, you're going to tweak your patellar tendon. And if there were a system in place where it could catch that before it gets to the point where you could injure yourself, I think like there would be so many so many athletes would be thankful because like who knows how many careers have been cut short because of an injury that could have been prevented through these uh, tactics and methods. I always feel like my body says, you're going to get injured. And then it starts getting louder and louder. And then finally I pay attention. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm paranoid because I'm like, this is my livelihood. I, I, I literally cannot take a day off because that's just going to set me back. And so I'm very in tune maybe almost too much to the point of like, okay, well, my, my knee is starting to feel weird. Is that a sign? Like, you know how people say as they get older, if they have arthritis or something, they can feel when rain's coming because their knees start to act up. I'm kind of like that where I'm like, okay, my, my finger hurts. Is that, is that a sign? I don't know. I feel like this kind of helps also put me at ease by using the Plantiga insoles. Cause it's like every little thing, is it something to be cause for concern but if it gets picked up on the data points then it's like okay now it's time to actually put a plan in place to be like okay maybe we you know we only lift two times a week instead of three times a week or we only do one sprint session versus three sprint sessions this week and it's yeah it's super interesting and and i i'm very happy to have that as part of my training regimen and so what are these next couple weeks going to be like for you before the olympics in terms of training yeah, it's going to be a lot of tapering and peaking and just getting the body primed and ready for essentially the biggest two weeks of my career. We are planning on staying put here in Europe just because of the variants that are circulating and we're trying to just keep ourselves protected and healthy for the games. And we're just going to, you know, just have a, a week or two of just solid training in before we head over to Beijing for the games. Just a quick reminder to sign up for Patreon to support the work I do at Hear Her Sports. For the same price as just a couple energy bars a month, you can become a patron at the Gear Up level and enjoy exclusive monthly audio content. You really do help out with this small operation of sharing stories and issues in women's sports. Please join us at patreon.com slash hearhersports. 
Now back to our conversation with Olympian Cynthia Appiah. For a Canadian Olympic video that you made, I think, for schools, you said that physical activity should be at the forefront of everyone's daily lives. And I wanted to talk to you about that because I've been thinking a lot about sort of the everyday athlete and encouraging physical activity for everybody. So I wanted to hear more about what you thought. Yeah, I mean, I'm part of an organization that's based out of Calgary that really helps to promote mostly uh, young girls into staying physically active. I'm pretty sure we've all heard that statistic of once girls hit that age of 13 or, you know, those preteen years, the drop off of girls who stick with physical activity or sports is immeasurable. I mean, actually, it is measurable. I shouldn't say measurable. And but, it's big. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a big drop off. It's so disheartening that, you know, there's a myriad of reasons why a lot of girls, you know, don't stick with sport, whether it's their friends aren't into it or it's not cool or they just can't afford it. And I, I'm a huge proponent of physical activity because it has opened so many doors for me. The life that I've been able to live up until this point, I don't know if I'd be able to have gotten all the opportunities that I've had and been to all the places that I've been to had I not been in sport. And so even if it's not sport per se, I still am a huge proponent of physical activity, whether it's through dance or going on a walk, something that's easy for someone to do and have it be repeatable throughout the week. So whether it's like, you know, you go three times a week, four times a week, twice a week, just keeping yourself active I mean, we live in a society where everything is a, a click away on a phone or, you know, a couple of keystrokes away on a laptop. And so we're becoming less and less mobile and more, I guess you could say, you know, like there's just not an incentive to really leave the house for a lot of people. And obviously I understand we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. So depending on where people are, lockdown measures could be in place and that can severely impact one's ability to move about. But even if it's within the home and you do something where, you know, for 15 to 30 minutes, you're active, just the health benefits alone, like we, we all know what the health benefits are of just being able to stay active, not just, you know, do one thing a week and be like, okay, I'm done, but remain active and again, do it multiple times a week. The benefits are lifelong. And if there's a way to kind of promote it at an early age so that it sticks through as people get older you know, you really can't beat that. I totally agree with you. I sometimes feel weird saying all of that because I'm physically active. I love being outside. I love moving. I love all the stuff that sports offers. But, you know, not everyone is like that. So mm -hmm. what can sport or being physically active offer to those who aren't going to the Olympics or not making it a career or maybe not even super physically inspired or gifted? I mean, I will be the first to say that as much as I love training at the gym and being physically active, there are days where I just, I'm like, oh man, I can't do this right now. I'm, I'd rather be at home just watching a movie on TV or on my laptop. We have those moments, but that being said, I kind of want to get away from the notion of you need to be in a gym on a treadmill or on a exercise bike or lifting weights to be physically active and to be healthy. Again, dance, a walk skip rope, whatever it is that you can do to kind of get that heart rate elevated and have it be fun. At the end of the day, it has to be fun and enjoyable. 
that's the only way you're going to get someone who is maybe apprehensive about doing something like that, getting active again. That's the only way you're going to really get them to stick around and keep it long-term. If it feels tedious and it feels like it's a chore, you know, that dropout rate is going to be exponentially high. But if you find an activity that you enjoy and you don't, it doesn't even feel like it's exercise. I mean, then that benefit is even more pronounced because it's like, Hey, I'm actually enjoying it. I'm having fun and I'm getting the health benefits out of it. If it just requires you joining a club where you can meet new people or you go with friends. So then it's like an excuse to get out of the house and connect with your friends that you maybe haven't seen during the week and you can catch up. There's ways to kind of tie it into other aspects of your daily life where it doesn't feel like it's exercise, but it is at the end of the day, some type of physical activity to get yourself moving. And so, yeah, whether it's like a weekly catch up or multi-weekly catch up with your friends, just finding a way to tie it into other aspects of your weekly routine will be beneficial. What has been the reception of your message? Um, I haven't really had a lot of feedback from adults, but like I said, that organization that I'm with, uh, the younger girls to try and really get them to stick in sport, the ones that are super keen on, on being athletes, you know, for a fact, they're going to stay around. And so they've been really receptive to it. The ones that you're on the fence with, you try and keep up with them or, you know, I mean, it's hard to keep in contact with, with a lot of the people that come through because, uh, a lot of these events have like hundreds of, of students that come through, but you just hope that they take something away from your messages. And at the end of the day, when they're walking home, when their parents are coming to pick them up, you get a lot of, you know, that was fun and I can't wait to try this. And I, I'm going to ask my dad or ask my mom if I can do this. And so at least in the moment, you know, you've made some type of an impact and you just hope that they can carry through with it. That's all you can really ask for. So I know that you have another interview, but I'd love to ask you about being a black athlete in winter sports, because I know that's so important to you. And we just talked about sort of being a model, mm -hmm. if you have time. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of grew up not really having a lot of like athletic role models that were black in winter sport. I know we've all seen the movie Cool Runnings, um, but I really didn't feel that connection, <laughs> right? It's it's kind of like, a, oh, it's a nice, lighthearted Disney movie. You know, the, the underdogs get to compete at the Olympic Games, but I never really felt that connection. And it wasn't until 2010 in Vancouver during those games when I saw Shelly Ann Brown competing and I was like, oh, shoot, like that, that looks like me. I look like her. That's someone, that's something I can do, you know? So that really kind of got the gears in motion and kind of really spurred that interest in getting into bobsleigh specifically. And I can only hope that with my visibility and and, my, and me being out and, and outspoken about really trying to diversify winter sport, that other athletes, other children, other youth, other adults see someone like me and get inspired to try something out of their comfort zone. It doesn't necessarily have to be you know, coming into winter sport, although I would highly like that it would be the end result. But I really want to kind of turn away from, I guess, you some like racial stereotypes that are perpetuated out there as to what people of certain races can and can't do. And one of them obviously being black athletes in winter sports and the capabilities of said athletes in said sports. And I, I obviously want to break down those stereotypes. But yeah, I hope to be some type of a representation of 
kicking down the doors and, you know, breaking the ceiling and, and, you know, putting yourself in a spot where maybe you, you or someone who looks like you isn't necessarily represented there, but through you being there, representation will continue to increase. I always find the word representation doesn't encompass how important it is for some, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, I think most people don't realize how important representation is and what it does to see yourself somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of pe- there are some people out there that kind of are like, oh, why does it matter? And I find like those are the kind of people that have been so used to seeing themselves on magazine covers, on news stories and portrayed in a positive light and not have to constantly be the spokesperson for how that that, that that's not necessarily the case for other people of other ethnic demographics or racial backgrounds. But then that just incentivizes me more to continue to speak out on it and so that it becomes the norm that you know any person of any color can do anything and you're not even going to bat an eye at it but we're still at a point right now where that conversation is either had at a service level or not had at all and so you kind of have to keep on pushing and pushing and pushing until eventually you see the the fruits of your labor and that and again if Part of that has to be with that representation piece of there are people out there that look like me who do all the things that people think people like me don't do. And we need to get past that point. I don't want to take you past the Olympics, but do you imagine yourself continuing to spread this message after the Olympics or, you know, like in the future? Oh, for sure. Because, I mean, I plan on going to another Olympics. Hopefully my body can stay intact. Oh, great. But I think it's an important piece for me because even if I didn't go for another Olympics, I still am a black woman. And so my life doesn't change and the hardships that I deal with do not change. So I have to continue speaking out on it and and pushing to kind of have my voice and the voices of other people of color heard, you know, so. And also young girls. I mean, even exactly. even that is a big, big thing, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything that you wanted to say that we didn't get to? No, I feel like we touched up on a lot of topics. And I again, I really appreciate you allowing me the time to speak and, and share my voice on, on your platform. Well, thank you very much and, and good luck. I'm, we're going to be rooting for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening again, if you are a regular listener, and for checking us out if you are new to the podcast. I'm so glad you found us. For all of you, if you liked what you heard, please share with your friends and colleagues. I'd love it if you told pretty much everyone you know. My guests and I are working hard to spread the word about the importance of women in sports. You can keep the stories alive by telling someone about them. We always have great shows coming up, So make sure to subscribe for free to Hear Her Sports on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a thing. Until next time, bye-bye. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial. 
a veteran of the paddle tennis world and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning or have never even heard of paddle or padel as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with a pro tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!